Welcome, ladies. So good to see all of you here. Thank you so much for coming today. I'm Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is a joy and a privilege to be here with you today studying the Word of God. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. And I want to say hello to West Campus. Um, We're so very glad that you are joining us this semester as well as we study Genesis chapters 12 through 50. Now, uh, Genesis, that word means beginning, and it's very fitting that we would be studying Genesis as we begin this new year, 2016. And so, Happy New Year. Happy New Year for y'all. And, wow, do we need to take a deep breath? We just finished um, that holiday season, which is Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And, y'all, I just figured out for the first time that takes place in less than six weeks. No wonder it's such a flurry. I mean, we have a lot going on. We spend a lot of time with family and a lot of time with friends, and it's um, all great fun, unless it's not. Um, but, (laughs) But it is a busy time, so it's good to be back today. And you know, that family and friends, no one really gets that connection better than those of you that have a college kid that came home for the holidays. How many of you had a college kid that came home for the holidays? Uh Uh-oh, this will confuse the outline people. Yeah, how many of you had a college kid coming home in the past? Sometime in the past. Yeah. Okay, how long were they with the family before they set their bags down and were off with friends? Yeah, about five minutes, maybe ten. They were either with their friends or they were um, planning to be with their friends. Friends are very important to them. And friends are important to us as well. We um, all uh, want a friend. Most of us in this room, probably all of us in this room would say we have a good friend. And we're going to be talking a lot about friends today and this whole semester. So I thought we would uh, talk just a minute about what is a friend. You might have talked about this in your small group time. A friend is someone you know. It's someone that you like, someone that likes you. It's someone that you trust and that you communicate with, usually face-to-face. It's someone that supports you when times are difficult, and they comfort you when you're sad, and they encourage you when you're down, and they celebrate with you when times are good. You know, friends are loyal and truthful, and they care about you. We are going to be talking about friends this semester, and the title of our study is um, Friends of God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Our study, um, and we're going to be looking at their lives, and we are going to be seeing and learning what we can about friendship with God from the lives of these four men. And our study begins in Genesis 12 because we studied the first 11 chapters of Genesis back in the fall of 2014. Now, some of you have said to me, hey, what took so long to finish up the book of Genesis? What have you been doing? Well, let me tell you real quickly the plan um, of women in the word um, so that you guys can understand this. We do have a plan. All right. Our, our year goes, <laughs> some of you are laughing, but we do. Our year goes just like a school year. The fall begins in September, goes to the end of November. And then our winter spring semester starts now in January, goes through to the end of April. And then we have a little short session a few weeks in June. And so in that year, 
from September until um, the end, we try to study both Old Testament and then New Testament. Sometimes we start with one in the fall and then we'll do the other in the spring, the winter spring semester. So we studied the first 11 chapters of Genesis in the fall of 2014. Then, in that winter spring, that was last year, we studied the book of Acts. And Acts is a great book. That's New Testament. Here's where we learn how the church began. We saw what happened after Jesus Christ died and was resurrected and ascended. He gave the disciples a task to be witnesses to him. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, they were to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we also meet Paul in the book of Acts. Paul was that zealous Jew who met Jesus through a vision on the road to Damascus, and he becomes a zealous evangelist, telling the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Most of us in this room are Gentiles, and so we're very grateful for the ministry of Paul. So we started this year, this fall of 2015, with two letters that Paul wrote to the early church. One was Galatians, one was Ephesians. And they were great little books full of encouragement and great doctrinal truth. Galatians is all about grace. We learn that we are free in Christ in Galatians because salvation, we don't have to work for it. It's by faith and faith alone. And then in Ephesians, it was another great little book. We learn that we are rich in Christ. In Ephesians, we see that we have forgiveness and redemption and an eternal home in heaven. And we are part of the family of God. And we learned how important unity is for the family. So we are coming now to this semester, this winter, spring, and we're back in the Old Testament. And we're going to finish up those um, chapters that uh, will finish the book of Genesis. There's 39 of them, chapters 12 through 50. And it's going to be a very, um, very great study. Now, how many of you were here uh, for Genesis chapters 1 through 11? How many of you? Raise your hand if you heard. Hey, that's good. Great. Good. Okay, so the rest of you weren't, but that's okay. Don't worry, because I'm going to give a quick overview of those first 11 chapters of um, Genesis. And um, it'll be good for the rest of us, because uh, most of us have probably forgotten much of what we learned in those first 11 chapters. So the review will be good. Hey, that reminds me of a story. Have you all heard about the uh, elderly gentleman and his wife that went into the little cafe to have breakfast? And they're sitting there, and he's using all kinds of um, terms of endearment for her. He's saying, sweetheart, will you pass the salt and pepper? And honey, what are you going to do today? And, you know, talking like that. And there's a little gal sitting at the table next to him, and she's like, oh, that's so kind. That's so sweet. So when the wife gets up and goes to the restroom, she leans over and she says to the elderly gentleman, "Um, I've noticed these terms of endearment that you're using to your wife. It is so kind. Have you all been married a long time? And he says, why, yes, we have been married a long time. And the truth is that I use those terms of endearment because about 10 years ago, I forgot her first name. (laughs) Hey, thanks for laughing. (laughs) I love that joke. Okay, it has nothing to do with Genesis except, you know, we're forgetful people. Yeah, anytime Scott calls me honey, I'm suspect, you know. Do you remember my name? (laughs) Getting to that age. Okay, 
So let's go um, and look at these first 11 chapters of Genesis. We've said that um, the word Genesis means beginning. And the first 11 chapters, we see the beginning of everything foundational and significant in our lives today. The first 11 chapters of Genesis can be remembered by four major events. And the first event, creation. The very first verse says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to say, um, God said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke a word, and creation came into being. He created the heavens above and the earth below with the waters and the oceans and the seas. And he put the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky, and he put fish in the ocean, and he put birds in the air, and he made animals to walk on the earth and then he made man and woman we see the trinity in that very first chapter of genesis because we read the ver the trinity is father, god the father god the son god the holy spirit and we see in that very first uh, chapter when he says let us make man in our own image all the Trinity, the all three parts were uh, involved in creation. And when he was finished, he said, it is good. And the man was called Adam and the woman was called Eve. And they walked with God in this beautiful garden. God was their friend, their friend. And then we have the second event, the fall. Sin enters the world. Um, Satan comes to Eve and he tempts her to eat from the fruit of the one tree in the garden that they couldn't touch. And that was the um, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They couldn't have the fruit of that tree. And so Satan comes and he tempts Eve and she eats it. And then Adam eats it. And sin enters the world and they know that they have disobeyed God and they run to hide they realize they're naked and God reaches out to restore that relationship and he kills an animal he makes skins and for them to cover themselves but there are consequences to their sin and they have to leave the garden you know man has made a mess of things God is reaching out to restore that relationship, but God has made a mess of things, and sin quickly escalates. In fact, in chapter 4, we see they have children, and their one son kills another son. Murder in chapter 4 of Genesis. And then we see genealogies in chapter 5. People are born and they die and born and die. And generations go on and sin runs rampant until the earth is filled with so much evil that God says, I'm going to judge the earth with the flood. But Noah walked with God. Noah was righteous. And so God said, build an ark. And Noah, in obedience, builds an ark. And so on the ark, Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives go on board. And they take two of every kind of animal with them. And when the rains come and the floods come up, they are safe in the ark. That is the third event, the flood. And they come off after the waters recede and they worship God and God gives them this command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And so that's what happens and some more generations come. But pretty quickly, man is once again in widespread rebellion against God. And we see that in chapters 10 and 11. In fact, in chapter 11, they all speak one language. A great group of these people come to the plain of Shinar and they decide, hey, we're going to stay here and we will build a great tower up to heaven so that we can make a name for ourselves. We don't want to fill the earth. They didn't want to obey God. They wanted to be God. And so that's what they begin to do. They begin to build this tower and to make homes in this one place. But God, he is going to fulfill his plan. His purposes will prevail, either in our obedience as we walk alongside him or through judgment and punishment and discipline. And so that's what happens. He comes down, he confuses their languages, and he spreads them out over the earth. And this is the fourth great event, the dispersion, or some call it the Tower of Babel story. You know, one theologian said, Genesis shows the glory of man. He is made in the image of God. And it also shows the shame of humanity, our great rebellion against our creator God. We very quickly see in these first 11 chapters that man cannot save himself. We are in need of a savior. And so chapter 11 does not end with this punishment, with this dispersion. It ends with a genealogy. And it is a genealogy of hope. It's the genealogy of Shem. Now Shem is one of Noah's three sons. And he was the son of blessing. And we learn that back in chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. We're not going to look at it. You can look that up later. Chapter 9, 26 and 27. He was the son of blessing. And this genealogy is important because God is going to provide a redeemer, a savior from the line of Shem. You know, way back in chapter 3, verse 15, we read the first promise of Jesus Christ. It's the first reference to a savior. We see that from Adam and Eve's first sin, God is reaching out over and over to rescue men and women and to restore us to a friendship with him. That, ladies, is what the Bible is all about. This is the story of the Bible. This is God's story. His story of his great love for mankind. So why is this genealogy of Shem so important? Well, because in this genealogy, we are introduced to Abraham. He's called Abram here. And from Abraham um, is going to come the... uh, Redeemer, the Savior, Jesus. Jesus is going to come from the line of Abraham. God is going to begin to work out his plan of redemption right here in this genealogy with Abraham. We're going to see God begin that plan to restore us to friendship with him. I said that the first uh, 11 chapters deal with four major events. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the dispersion. Well, starting here in chapter 12, the rest of Genesis is going to deal with four major people. Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and one of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph. Those are the four um, main people in the rest of this book of Genesis. So... 
The story of, um, begins in chapter 12, and we are going to see the history of God's people. And this history is not boring. If you didn't like history in school, you're going to like this history because it is stories of people. God's stories of people. And they are just like you and me. These are stories of great faith and great failure. These are stories of romance and love and marriage. Stories of quarrels and hurt and sadness. They're stories of truth and deceit. Stories of belief and doubt. Obedience and disobedience. These stories have mystery and intrigue and promise. Promises made and promises kept by God. Lots of promises. They are important in this last part of the um, book of Genesis that we're going to be studying. Promises. This is better, ladies. You're going to want to read this. It's a lot to read. You're going to love it, though, because it's better than any Hallmark movie. And I've been looking at a lot of those. It's better than your favorite TV show. It's better than the best novel you've seen. These are true stories about real people. It's God's history. And it is going to be an exciting semester. I'm so glad that you are here to study this book of Genesis. So let's get started. We're going to um, turn to chapter 12, verse 1. But before we start reading that, I want you just to look up to um, this uh, genealogy in chapter 11. Now, we're not going to read the whole genealogy. That, um, it begins in, chapter, uh, in verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. But we're just going to start in verse 27. And it says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Nahor and Haran. Now remember that Abram, his name will be changed to Abraham. That's the same guy, Abram Abraham. And so we're going to use that interchangeably up here. So just know that is the same guy. So we see um, Abraham's father, Terah. We see his brothers. And it says that, um, let's go down to verse 29 here where it says, And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Okay, now Sarah, that is also going to, her name is going to be changed. And it's going to change to Sarah. And so Sarai and Sarah, same woman, wife of Abraham. So I don't want you to get confused. And verse 30 is important. It says, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So remember that. That's going to come into play here. And then verse 31 says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they had come to Haran, they settled there. Okay, so we see um, Abraham, his family, and we see that he leaves Ur of the Chaldeans and he's going on um, to Haran. So let's begin with that background knowledge there. Let's begin chapter 12, verse 1. And here's where we're going to start our story of Abraham. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. You know, there is so much to learn in that one verse. We're going to talk about it for a minute. And it raises a few questions for me. The first question is, when did God call Abraham? Because this is God's call to Abraham right here, verse 1 of chapter 12. When did this happen? Where was Abraham? Well, we saw up there in uh, chapter 11 that he left Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they stopped. So Haran was just a temporary stop.
stop. That was just a temporary stop for Abraham as he was going on to Canaan. So the call looks like it would have come to Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now that is also affirmed in the New Testament. And sometimes we use other scriptures to help us understand scripture. So in Acts 7, those of you that are new, you have a verse sheet and um, an outline and a great map. And you're going to want to keep that for the semester. So let's look at Acts 7, 2 through 4. This is Stephen talking. Now Stephen, um, some of you might remember, he was the first martyr. He was that um, early Christian that was stoned to death. And before they stoned him, he gave a history lesson to the Jewish leadership. And this is what he says. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now, Stephen was in Jerusalem when he gave this history lesson to the Jewish leaders. Jerusalem is in Israel, which was formerly known as Canaan. So this is um, where he's talking from. So it would seem from this that God called Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. And what is the call? What is that call? Well, he says, leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house. That's like saying, leave your hometown and your aunts and uncles and your second cousins and your brothers and sisters and um, go forward. And go forward where? Where? Abraham must have said, and God said to the land, I will show you. Now, to do what God has asked Abraham will take great faith. It will take great faith to leave what you know and to go out into this unknown place. And um, I, I, I want you to know a little bit about Ur of the Chaldeans. Some of you may, have think, may think of Abraham, because we've seen these pictures, that he was just this nomad wandering around in the sandy desert. Not true when he starts out. He's in Ur of the Chaldeans. It was the greatest commercial capital that the world had yet seen. There were many people living there. They were civilized. They had writing and the arts, and they had a great legal system. Hammurabi's Code, there's a throwback to world history, uh, mentions Ur of the Chaldeans. They were civilized, and they had a religious system. It was idol worship, and they had pagan practices as part of their culture. They, there were many people here. And so Abraham leaves all that and he strikes out into the unknown. And that was not easy. Now, chapter 11 tells us that he goes with Terah. Terah is probably mentioned first there. That's his father. And we're going to put the map up on the screen so we can see that. Oh, shucks, and I forgot my laser printer. I mean pointer. Okay, but you can see Ur is down here at the bottom. Thank you, Tara. And um, that's Ur of the Chaldeans. This is modern-day Iran. This is Mesopotamia, all in here. And here's Ur. And he takes off and he goes um, 600 miles northwest up to Haran, or some of you may say Haran. And he travels along the Euphrates River. That's why they go this way, so that they would have water for all of their, themselves and for their livestock. And this is his temporary place. This is where they stop for um, a little bit, 600 miles to the northwest. That would have taken um, a lot of faith to move out and to do that. 
The other question I have is why, and we're going to leave that map on the screen because we're going to look at it more. The next question I have is why did God pick Abraham? Why Abraham? You know, there's nothing that is special about Abraham before God calls him. We know that he's from the line of Shem, but we um, can only assume that this is God's plan. It's God's will. This was what God wanted to call Abraham. And it was God's pure grace. It was grace. We don't see anything in Abraham that merits favor before God's call. We don't see Abraham doing anything really special. And I love that because you know what? We do not deserve God's favor either. Think about it. We don't deserve God's favor. And yet, out of love for us, he has provided a way for us to have a relationship with him. God provides a way for us to have a relationship with him. In fact, on your verse sheet, Romans 5.8 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is the one who initiates a relationship with you. God is the one calling out to you and initiating a relationship with you, just like he did with Abraham. So let's go on and see that's Abraham's um, call from God. Let's see what God says next, verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, you can divide this up different ways. I see seven promises here, and they can be put into three general categories. Um, those categories are land, seed, that means descendants, and blessing. All those promises, the seven promises, fit into those three categories. And you're going to be hearing those words a lot. Land, seed, and blessing. Because we're going to be talking about this promise um, a great deal in this study of Genesis. So let's go through these seven things um, promise by promise. Verse, the very first one, I will make you a great nation. This is talking about land. This is physical land that he is promising to Abraham. He had said, go to the land I will show you. And now he's saying, I will make you a great nation. And a great nation takes land. He's promising him physical land. This is the land promise. Next, he says, I will bless you. Um, there are four out of the seven promises I see here dealing with blessing. Um, we're going to talk about that more in a minute. And then it says, and I will make your name great. This is descendants. You need descendants to, for a great name. So this is the seed promise. I will make your name great. And then he says, and you will be a blessing. So he is going to bless Abraham, and Abraham in turn will be a blessing. And this is an imperative. This is said as a command. You, Abraham, will be a blessing. So what does blessing mean? Let's talk about that for a while. That's, that's kind of a word that you wonder. You know, it means anything that's promoting or contributing to happiness, well-being, or prosperity. It's God's favor. It's adding to something. Um, and I have, whenever I think of the word bless, I have this um, 
story that comes to my mind when I was a little girl. Some of you know this. Um, I was probably about five years old, maybe younger. My brother was four, and we had gone to my grandparents' house. My grandfather was a Nazarene minister, and uh, when he would go upstairs to work on his sermon in the study, we could not go upstairs. So we're like four or five, and I just remember we have gone to the top of the stairs. I don't know why, except probably we weren't supposed to. So we crawl up, and we think we're being quiet. I may have even been four. I was little. Um, And all of a sudden, we get to the top, and we hear um, our grandfather saying, Oh, Lord, bless Debbie and Timmy. Oh, Lord, bless Debbie and Timmy. Well, I'm like four or five years old, but I know bless is a good thing. And I'm thinking, and I'll look at my brother, and I'm thinking, He's asking God to bless us, and we're disobeying him, and our eyes get big, and we quickly go down the stairs. I think of that, and sometimes this will make me cry when I'm down or when I'm, I need some strength. I think of my grandfather, and sometimes I call out to God as if I were my grandfather, and I say, oh, Lord, bless Debbie and Timmy. It's a prayer for myself. Blessing. Blessing is a good thing. We may not know exactly what it means, but we want blessing. We know it's a good thing. So we see blessing here. Let's go on. God says, I will bless those who bless you. Because to bless Abraham was to bless Abraham's God. So he's going to bless those who bless you. And the opposite is true, too. He says, and I will curse those who curse you. Um. It even says, I will, those that dishonor you. So you didn't even have to be curse Abraham just to dishonor him, to disdain him, was to disdain Abraham's God. And it would result in cursing. And then we see the greatest promise of all. And it says, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. This is God's promise of a redeemer. And God's promises to Abraham will result in a savior for the world. Jesus was going to be Abraham's greatest descendant. You know, God, these promises um, make up God's covenant to Abraham, and we're going to be studying that uh, in depth in two weeks. Um, And I also want to say that these promises will be repeated to Abraham's son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob. And we're also going to see more details unfold about these promises as the weeks go on. In fact... Really, the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible is all about God keeping and working out these promises. This is a pivotal time in history. If you understand this, you can understand the rest of the Bible because this all falls into place. These are some of the most important verses in the Bible. These promises that God makes to Abraham. So what is Abraham going to do? What's he going to do? He's been called by God. He's been given these promises. What does he do? Let's read verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's nephew. Lot and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
So what does Abraham do? After he gets this call and he hears these promises, he believes God. Abraham believes God. He believes these promises. And he responds to the call of God with obedience. Abraham believes God. He trusts him. And these are two um, themes that we're going to see over and over again in Genesis. Trust and obedience. We saw it all through the first 11 chapters. And we're going to see it now as we go forth. Trust and obey. Are we going to trust God and obey him? Or turn away from God and disobey him? Trust God. To trust is to have faith. And a definition I like of faith is taking God at his word. Faith is believing God. And obedience follows faith. On your verse sheet, I have um, Hebrews 11.1. This is what it says about faith. Now, faith is, is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Even when we don't, can't see it, we have faith. And then Romans 1.5 says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. This is Paul talking about the obedience of faith. Obedience follows faith. So Abraham with his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot and all the servants and people they've gathered leave um, Haran and they go to Canaan to a place called Shechem. Now Shechem is a very significant place. You're going to hear it mentioned several more times throughout Genesis and in the Old Testament. And it's actually in the New Testament as well. It's called Sychar and that is where Jesus met the woman at the well. And Shechem is right here. It is geographically kind of in the center of Canaan. And it's important. So let's read on and see one of the reasons why it's so important. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill... Oh, let's stop first with... um, He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So we see um, that God appears to Abraham. Abraham believed God. He believed his promises. He trusted him, obeyed him. He left his country and his extended family back in Haran. And he comes to this unknown place called Canaan, which is inhabited, by the way. And God appears to him. And God says to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abraham learns um, something new here. God is clarifying that promise of land. It's going to be a promise that will be fulfilled in the future. And guess what? Abraham doesn't have any children. He doesn't have any offspring. Sarah was barren. Remember, he has a nephew, but he doesn't have any children of his own. And, by the way, the land is inhabited. So that's interesting, but what is Abraham's response? He builds an altar. He worships God. The altar represents a holy place. And here we see Abraham worshiping the one true and living God. You know, how do you respond to God's promises when times are difficult or there's obstacles? You know, how do I respond? Abraham responds 
in worship. He worships God. And uh, probably Sarah, his wife, and Lot, and those people that are with him, they're probably all there worshiping God. And remember, the Canaanites are there. They are probably watching from afar. And this altar would have most likely been made with stones, and it would have been more permanent than Abraham's home, which was a tent that he was putting up and taking down and moving. But the altar probably stayed there in place. So let's go on and read verse 8 and see what Abraham does. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So once again, we see Abraham building an altar. You get this feeling that everywhere um, Abraham pitches a tent, he builds an altar and he worships God. Abraham is a worshiper of the one true and living God. Be on the lookout for these altars. See, count how many you see. Abraham building, and then Isaac building, and then Jacob building. Abraham's response to God is to worship him. You know, um, Abraham was establishing here worship of the one true and living God. He was openly speaking of his faith in God and God's promises. Remember, the Canaanites are probably watching. So this altar is a visual uh, confession, a visual representation of Abraham's belief in God and Abraham's worship of God. And, you know, worship is important to us today. It was important then. It's important to us today, and so I want to take a moment to talk about worship. What is worship? How do you define that? You know, worship is the reverent love and allegiance that is accorded to a deity. The children's ministry, I love their simple explanation. It says, love God most, put God first. That is their definition of worship. Love is always the most important part of worship. You know, Unger's Bible Dictionary, when I read that, I thought it was very interesting because it says it is as natural to worship as it is to live. Worship is a necessity to man. It's a necessity because we were made, our souls were created to worship God, to know God, to love God. But sometimes, as individuals, we get confused by this desire to worship God, and we place our worship on something else or someone else, and that is not soul-satisfying. We are created to love and worship God, the Father, God of the universe. Now, many of us here worship at Christ Chapel on Sunday morning or Sunday evening, um, and that is formal corporate worship. But really, you can worship God anywhere. You may have a special place in your home where you sit and read your Bible and talk to God and listen to God. That's worship. Or you may, when you're in your car, listen to praise music, sing praise music out to God. That's worship. Anytime that you're walking along the way or you're laying down in bed at night and you think about God and you pour out praises and love to him, that is worship. You know, we want to worship God. We are designed to adore him, to give him glory, to delight in him, to express the love back to him that is overflowing on us from God himself. I have a great picture of worship. Um, my granddaughter, Hallie, she's my number two. Hallie, by the way, means praise the Lord, comes from hallelujah. Um, she was in her car seat. She was about two years old. My daughter had a praise um, 
tape on and this song comes on, well-known praise song. And Hallie, two years old, begins to wave her arms and close her eyes and she says, and try to sing along the words. And she goes, Mom, turn it up. This is my jam. And I'm like, I'm glad you're laughing. I'm like, what is your jam? And she said, that means your favorite song. I think she learned it at church. But anyway, this little two-year-old, she probably doesn't even realize, but her soul is delighting in the Lord. She is worshiping God. It's such a sweet picture. You know, there's so many ways to worship God. Praying, singing, um, praising him, reading scripture, studying. Hey, that sounds like a lot of what we're doing today. We're worshiping God here this morning. It can be giving to him your time, your money. It can be um, observing the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper. That is all part of worship. So Abraham's response to God is to obey him, to trust him, and uh, to worship him. And our response can be the same. Obey God. First, um, we believe God. Then we obey him, then we worship. So what do we believe about God? It's right here in his word. Read his word. Here is where we learn about who God is, his character, his desires, his plans and purposes. Here we read his promises, and that is what we believe. Then we obey God. And we worship God. Okay, on your verse sheet, I have a promise. I just had to throw this in. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. A beautiful promise. So let's go on. We're going to study this last little bit of... uh, Um, Genesis 12 with this last story and um, these 10 verses. And this is where we want to say, oh, Abraham, say it's not so. Um, Because here, after all this believing God and having faith in God, here we see his lack of faith. He's not trusting God. But you know what? This is really a good story for us because this is our story. We trust God, we love God, and then we lack faith. You know, Abraham's known for his faith. He's called the man of faith. But in these chapters to come, we're going to see his faith grow and deepen and grow and deepen until um, chapter 22, Abraham's finest hour, we see his unshakable faith. And so it is with us on our journey. We walk along and the experiences that we have as we trust God helps to deepen our faith. And then the next time we trust God, it helps to deepen our faith. And so pretty soon, instead of walking one step forward, one step back, two steps, one step, pretty soon we're walking four steps forward in faith and one step back. Our faith grows and deepens. So let's look at this story um, of Abraham. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So what's happening here is a famine, and Abraham goes down to Egypt. That was a fertile place, and it had crops. Now, probably this doesn't show lack of faith. Um, There's debate on it, but probably not. We don't um, see that he has uh, consulted God about it, but he's going there for survival. And there is a verse in Hebrews 11.15 that gives us a little insight. It's talking about Abraham and his sons. It says here, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, 
they would have had opportunity to return. I think this is talking about Abraham, possibly here. He could have gone back to um, Haran. He could have gone all the way back to Ur of the Chaldeans. But he doesn't do that. No, he's going down to Egypt to get food for his family and for his livestock. But now we see in these next verses his foolish plan. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my, that my life may be spared for your sake. So here we see his foolish plan. We know this is foolish because it's not God's plan. God would not want us to practice deceit. And uh, so we see here two things that um, cause Abraham to make this foolish plan. And the first one is fear. They're going to kill me. And the second one is selfishness. I will be treated well. You know, these are two emotions or two um, attitudes that often lead to trouble because when we are focusing on our um, fear or selfishness, we're focusing on ourselves. We're not focusing on God. We're not trusting God. We're not concerned with God's will or God's character or what God would have for us. No, we are motivated by what seems best for me. This is what seemed best for Abraham. Certainly not Sarah, because he's telling Sarah to lie. She's going to be part of that deceit. So let's go on and see what happens with um, Abraham's foolish plan. Verse 14. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Okay, so here's what happens. Now, let me tell you about the culture. It Usually, um, if you're going to marry somebody, you go to their family and you ask permission and then you make a deal and give them something. And so Abraham might have thought, if somebody wants to marry Sarah, they will come to me, her brother, and get permission to marry her. But the one person that Abraham had, hadn't counted on wanted Sarah, wanted Sarah. The Pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt. He's the one person who doesn't have to go ask permission to marry someone. He doesn't have to go to her brother and bargain for her. So Abraham is treated well. He gains wealth and all of these things, but he's about to lose his wife. He's about to lose his wife. He's putting God's promise into jeopardy because remember, Abraham doesn't have a child. He doesn't have an offspring yet, and it's pretty hard to have a descendant without a wife. So Abraham's putting God's um, plan in jeopardy. He is unable to deliver himself from this dilemma, and his situation is grim when God intervenes. God is faithful to Abraham, even when Abraham lacks faith in God. And God's grace is evident here. So let's go on and read verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all he had. 
It would seem that the Egyptians hold marriage in high esteem. They wouldn't marry somebody that was already married to someone else. They might take a maiden, but not marry someone that was already married. So he sends Abraham in disgust away, and he calls Abraham out for his deceit. We see that God um, has overcome Abraham's sin. He's restored Sarah to Abraham, and he sends them back to Canaan. God's grace is evident. God is faithful to his word here. He is faithful to keep his promises. God doesn't let Abraham's foolish plans stop his plan. And the lesson for Abraham, trust God and tell the truth. And it's the same um, promise for us, to, and it's the same lesson for us today. Trust God and tell the truth. And you know, in this world right now, we can stand out as truth tellers. Be a truth teller because lying is so commonplace. I heard someone on TV, I mean, it was just like she wasn't even shocked. She was just like, well, of course I lie. Everybody lies. That's what the world thinks. Everybody lies. Why not lie? Everybody does it. We can stand out as truth tellers because we believe in God. We know God. We walk with God. We are friends with God. And the truth is important to God. So as friends of God, let's be truth tellers. You know, Abraham's called a friend of God in several places in Scripture. I just want to read um, Isaiah 41.8. It's one of my favorites because this is God talking. He says, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. God calls Abraham his friend. And we know that Jesus calls the disciples his friends um, in uh, John 15, 15. I'm not going to read that. But I do want to read John 15, 13 because we are also friends of Jesus. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. We are his friends and we can walk alongside Jesus in friendship and in obedience. We have a friend in Jesus. Jesus laid down his life so that friendship with God might be restored. That's what we're learning in this book of Genesis. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for all those times we mess up. Those foolish times, those fearful times, those selfish times, the rebellious times. In Genesis, we learn that God has been reaching out to mankind from the very beginning. God wants to be our friend. He wants us to walk with him and to know him more intimately. And this semester, in these um, stories of Genesis, we can learn more about God. We can know him more intimately. There is a great deal that we can learn about his character and his love and his plan and his desire for friendship with you and me. You know, our walk with God is a journey, and we're all in different places on this journey. But in these chapters 12 through 50 in Genesis, there is something individual for each one of us that will draw us into a closer friendship with God. Through his word, we will be drawn into a more intimate, into a closer friendship with him. I hope you come back. Keep on with the study of Genesis. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a mighty God. You are a holy God and a powerful God, and you are our friend. And Father, we're so grateful 
for that. We're so grateful you provided a way for us to be in friendship with you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these stories, Lord, that tell us more about you. Father, help us to see ourselves in these stories, your story of your great love for mankind. We love you, Lord. Be with us. Bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.